Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and related to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we're also going to share some exciting offers. And please feel free to share this with people who you know who will also find it of interest. So today, we're speaking with a really important and special guest, but also regarding a really important anniversary that's taking place this week. Yaakov Katz is editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post and author of Shadow Strike, Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power. This book tells the story behind the scenes of Israel's bombing of the, of the nuclear reactor in Syria this week in 2007. He's also the co-author of two other books, Weapon Wizards, How Israel Became a High-Tech Military Superpower, and Israel versus Iran, The Shadow War. Basically, with all these credentials, he is uniquely qualified to join us today about this topic, looking back on a bold Israeli military operation 15 years ago, and how the lessons from this and the ensuing 15 years places Israel in a position to consider an operation against Iran's nuclear, uh, much bigger and much more covered nuclear program and threat. Underscoring his credentials for close to a decade, he also served as the Jerusalem Post military reporter and defense analyst and was a faculty member and lecturer at Harvard University, where he taught an advanced journalism course. He also served as correspondent for Jane's Defense Weekly in Israel for five years. And prior to taking up his role as editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Report, Yaakov served as senior policy advisor to Israel's Minister of Economy and Minister of Diaspora Affairs. Yaakov is originally from Chicago and has a law degree from Bar Ilan University here in Israel, and he currently lives in Jerusalem with his wife and four children. Now, because the news cycle is always 24-7 and really has no downtime, um, and Yaakov happens to have a major newspaper to run here in Israel. I'm particularly pleased that you're able to join us today, Yaakov. Welcome to Inspiration from Zion. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to see you. Uh, we have the opportunity of seeing each other because we're recording this by Zoom. Um, before we get into the topic, I mean, the really, really important and historic uh, anniversary this week about which you've written the authoritative book. Like me, uh, a lot of our listeners like to know our personal stories. And like me, you made Aliyah from the United States, you grew up in Chicago. Can you share a little bit about your Aliyah story, what it's like to be living today in the modern state of Israel and raising a family here from a, whether you like to choose historic, religious, and or prophetic perspective? Well, there are a lot of different perspectives. Well, first of all, it's great to be with you and to be on the podcast. I appreciate it. And the warm introduction. Uh, I was brought to Israel back in 1993 as a 14-year-old teenager by my parents who told my brothers and I that we were coming to Israel for a year. Ah. And uh, 
one year for me has turned into more than 28 years, uh, just now marking my 28th year anniversary of living in Israel, pretty much uh, consecutively since then. Although I had two two breaks, uh, one of a year when I did a fellowship at Harvard, and then nine months I spent in New York at one point. But um, for the most part, I've lived here. Uh, interestingly, my parents no longer live in Israel. But uh, but three, my bro two of my brothers and myself are still here. Uh, one of us is back in the United States, and uh, it has been an amazing journey and an amazing experience with many ups and downs over the years and uh, challenges that I think many people face when moving from one country to another. Although I did come here at a younger age, so uh, I would say that my ability to acclimate was was different than people who come in their 20s or 30s or 40s uh but it it's it still it had its challenges and i had been to i always tell people i'd been to israel a number of times before moving here in 1993 i had my bar mitzvah here my brother's bar mitzvah here i remember coming in the 1980s as a young kid uh for passover one year and the thing that blew my mind the most was that there was kosher for passover uh, pizza in Israel, uh, which was pretty disgusting at the time, but 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 it was still coming from Chicago. We didn't have anything like that. Uh, but little did I know that there were actually high schools in Israel, and then you know going to high school then meant going to the army, uh, and all of those were were was I think what part kind of created the identity that I have today, which uh, as a journalist here in Israel, I, I very much care for this country. Uh, I care deeply for the future of the country, but I also care deeply for the future of the Jewish people around the world. And uh, I think for that reason, a lot of the coverage that we do at the Jerusalem Post does pertain to the fate of diaspora Jewry and to uh, what is happening to the relationship between the state of Israel and Jews around the world. And and maybe that's because of my background, that that, that is an important focus for me and for what the newspaper does. Well, I'm glad you said that also because, you know, I, I, in preparing some notes to think about what to speak with you, you know, I know you, what we've met, I, follow each other on on social media and occasionally share some comments and and private messages. And I, and I, by the way, I always love your candor, but you're, you're sitting in the position as editor-in-chief of arguably one of Israel's most significant historic newspapers that precedes the founding of the state when the paper was called the Palestine Post. Do you get to think about, do you, do you take a break and think about, wait, you know, this is a, I, I'm here in the corner office as part of something that's historic, not just something I care about. Without a doubt. I mean, you know, what you're touching on is something that I think about often. Uh, also, the fact that the Jerusalem Post is this year, December 1st, will mark its 90th anniversary, right? Amazing. December, December 1st, 1932, that we started printing a daily newspaper. Uh, and, and we've done so since then, uh, every single day, except for Saturdays, of course, except for Shabbat. But we print six days a week. And uh, it, it definitely, I carry with me that responsibility. I feel a, a genuine privilege and oper amazing opportunity to be sitting in this chair and and to have the mantle uh, currently in my hands of the Jerusalem Post and yeah. to be able to steer its editorial direction 
uh, in a very complicated era, I would say. You know, journalism today has changed so much in the last 20 years that I've been working in this business, but even in the last six and a half years that I've served as editor, it's it's it, the challenges change all the time. It goes from you know whether when you're a newspaper and a website, what's the focus that you give to the print? What's the focus that you give to digital? To how do you arrange your and organize your newsroom? To how do you uh, then organize your news coverage? I mean, so you know, there's then there's the economic and business challenges. Then there was COVID, of course, over the last couple of years. But I would say that today, the biggest challenge that I feel often uh, a lot of time is just the the complete mistrust or distrust that people that the public has with the media wow uh, and that has me concerned what i'm also very concerned about is the people people's inability to be willing to hear a, a narrative that is different than what they are uh engineered or, or 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 what they believe or however you want to look at it but if someone believes x they refuse right. to listen to y right. and i see that you know i mean in america it's insane what's going on right you know uh you you can watch fox news and then watch msnbc and feel like you're looking at two different realities but we, right. we we have that here and we have that within our own jewish people and we have that within the israeli people and and I, I I feel that often, and I and I and and I sometimes I push back on it because the way I view journalism, and maybe I'm old school, but the way I view it is that it's not my job to tell you what to believe. It's my job to give you the information so you yeah. can then make the educated decision of what you want to believe. And part of that, what that entails, is on the one hand giving you news. And giving you what what you know, there's no 100% objectivity in news, but giving you the most objective and the most uh, uh, news, the best news that is with the least agenda yes. behind it. But at the same time, giving you opinions from across the spectrum, and that's where I find that people want to close their ears, Correct. don't want to have to hear or see something that they don't agree with, and and that scares me for the future right. of of people. I, well, I happen to agree with you personally. I love getting your Friday emails with the column, but I don't read the emails because part of my ritual Friday night and Saturday Shabbat is to read the newspaper. I like, I like getting, I really, it's not a, it's not a good weekend for me if I don't get the newsprint on my hands and on my, and on my pants. And, and I appreciate how you balance that. Um, I appreciate, by the way, that every now and that now and again, um, the, the Jerusalem Post also will publish a couple of my things. Um, no, it, I, I think it's great. Anyone who doesn't know Yako Katz, doesn't follow his stuff. Where, where can people find our, your articles and subscribe to, uh, your, your emails? Uh, subscribe to the emails. I guess I, you know, people can write me privately. My uh, email is, is Yaakov, Y-A-A-K-O-V, Yaakov at jpost.com. Uh, but I'm, you know, all, anything I write is on, is going to, you can find online, you can find on Facebook, okay. you can find on Twitter. Got it. Uh, but feel free to reach out privately. Okay. Well. Excellent. So if I, thank you for all that background. I want to jump into the topic for which I invited you, but I, I, I would be really remiss to miss another anniversary that's taking place this week. Um, so before we talk about your book and the Israeli airstrike on, on Syria 15 years ago, 50 years ago this week was a tremendous tragedy, 
Uh, it, it just gives me chills even talking about it. The massacre of Isra- 11 Israeli athletes at the Olympics in Munich. Um, while it's not directly related, of course, to talking about the C- a Syrian nuclear facility, how can you comment? You're here long enough and you know, you know Israel well, intimately. H- how has Munich impacted Israel still today that it's part of our psyche and, and maybe specifically related to security, which is a jumping off point to our main topic? Well, it's definitely connected to security because I think what happened in the Munich massacre during the Olympics was the fact that uh, Israel, all Israelis are a target, right? And uh, sadly, that happened 50 years ago, but we see that that's still the case today, right? Just a few weeks ago, the uh, National Security Council put out a travel advisory against being in uh for all Israelis to get the hell out of Istanbul, right? Because there were Iranian terrorist cells that were there just searching for Israelis to abduct or to murder. Uh, Unfortunately, still in in 2022, being being an Israeli, being a Jew in the world, you you have to be careful. You have to be vigilant. And and, and I think that, you know, if anything, that needs to to shake us to our core, Uh, not us, you and I, Jonathan, because we live this, but any other person in the world needs to ask themselves, how is it possible that 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 Yaakov or Jonathan don't feel safe walking the streets of, you know, okay, yes, Jerusalem, Efrat, or, you know, wherever we live, that's our decision. But when we fly off to Paris, or we go to London, or we go to New York, or Chicago, or Florida, right? right that we, 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 and you know what, and, and, and unfortunately, Jews don't feel safe. All over the place. Uh, they have to be careful. They have to take off their kippah in certain places. They have to make sure that, um, you know, they're looking over their shoulder. And, and this is something that I think Israelis still carry with them. Jews are, are more vigilant than, than they, than they should have to be. And that's a problem for the entire world, right? Indeed. And, and, and I think that that, that's the lesson on the one hand. On the other hand, what the Munich massacre also came with it was the aftermath when the prime minister at the time, Golda Meir, tasked the Mossad with hunting down the people who perpetrated those attacks. Yes. And in, 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 in intelligence folklore in Israel, the, uh, the Munich massacre was the last time that uh, after the, the aftermath of it was the last time that Israel went, went after terrorists because of what they did and not because of what they were going to do. So ah. the, the the operation itself of of taking these people out and there were mysterious bombings and places in Europe and people who were gunned down or a bomb placed under a car or under a bed and things like that. Um, but a number of Palestinian terrorists who were part of the Black September group that was responsible for the massacre. Um, since then, the, what, what's changed in Israeli uh, security establishment was the fact that we, we no longer as a country go after people for what they did, but we think about what they're going to do. So if you ever hear of an Israeli or an alleged Israeli assassination or targeted killing, um, that is because of something that those people are planning. One good example was what happened a few weeks ago, Jonathan, in the Gaza Strip, when we had that flare up over a few days, uh, Israel... It, it, it began on a Friday afternoon when Israel bombed an apartment building in Gaza, just took out one apartment there in the entire building, but killed a uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad commander 
called Taisir al-Jabari. Taisir al-Jabari was the head of the uh, northern branch of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a well-known Iranian-supported terrorist group. They then carried, uh, fired over a thousand rockets into Israel in the three days of the operation. But, but he was taken out, not because of something that he did, because he was planning, actively planning to use an anti-tank missile and to fire it at an Israeli civilian school bus traveling right. along the border. So, right. so again, so you, that, that, that's just another kind of role that the, the Munich massacre. Uh, I, I appreciate you, you unpacking that so much. It just happens to be a coincidence that arguably most of those people that Israel might be targeting also have a history of doing this in the past, but you're right. It's on actionable intelligence for something that's coming up. Um, before I want to jump into, and you've really laid a great foundation talking about Munich, talking about uh, about these kind of preemptive attacks. Before we jump into really the, the the main topic, I just want to take a break for a second, and then we're going to come right back and dig in. When you think of Jerusalem, you probably think of its historic and biblical sites. Run for Zion is a trip unlike any other. You will join tens of thousands of Israelis interacting with Jerusalem as you never have and never imagined you would. You'll connect with and bless Israelis of all backgrounds. If you've never been to Israel and are dying to come visit, or haven't been for a while and can't wait to get back, Run for Zion is the opportunity for you. And now, if you register today, you can join us for as little as $29. Yes, that's for real, just $29. Run for Zion is a pilgrimage and service experience that gets you out of the tour bus, interacting with the people and the land. Check out runforzion.com for details and come run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. Okay, so Yaakov, you just laid out a a minute ago um, some really great stuff as far as connecting Munich and the the level of insecurity that we have a right to feel as Israelis and Jews, uh, Israelis specifically and Jews around the world in general, which is a shame, right? 50 years since Munich and, and 80 years since the Holocaust not a whole lot's changed, uh, and, and we're facing a lot of issues. You wrote, I don't know when, but but it, it's the, 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 the incident took place, Israel's attacking uh, and, and taking out of a North Korean-built nuclear facility in Syria um, 15 years ago this week. And your book is the authoritative book, Shadow Strike, which, by, by the way, by full disclosure, I have not yet read. I do look forward to that. Actually, I ordered it um, today on Amazon. I did. Because I do want to read it, but um, there were, and, and there was a precedent for this. The precedent, as I'm taking it, was the 1981 Israeli bombing of the Osirak nuclear reactor in Iraq, in Iraq, um, which became a pillar of what's known now as the Begin Doctrine. Can you, as as we kind of begin the conversation on the Israeli attack 15 years ago, can you discuss how and why then Prime Minister Olmert made the decision? to conduct that operation and how, if at all, the, the Begin doctrine, if you will, um, impacted that? Uh, that's the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. But, uh, Wrap. <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, I would say the following, right? The uh, Israel is a very small country. Anyone who knows Israel knows that we are a, a small piece of land with a narrow waistline in the middle just uh, maybe a dozen miles wide in certain places. Um, We don't have strategic depth and we don't have the ability to potentially sustain 
the detonation or the explosion of a nuclear weapon within the country. Uh, it, it, it would be unimaginable. I don't think it would mean necessarily the end of, of the Jewish state. But, but I do think that, God forbid, a nuclear weapon that uh, would go off in the center of Israel would make living in this country uh, very complicated um, because of nuclear fallout, because of radiation, because of just the, the, the extent of the destruction. So with that in mind, yeah, no, that, that's number one. Number two is so you don't have strategic depth. You also don't really have a lot of room to preempt right? Uh, 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 an enemy potentially gets a nuclear weapon and fires off a missile uh, within seconds sometimes, but within minutes, it, it will be here, right? It's not, you know, I know that Am Americans growing up, I remember in, as a kid, even in the 1980s in school, sometimes we would do uh, during the Cold War, right? Uh, probably you're, you're a little older than I am. You remember this probably better. I know that my parents have told us stories of how they would have to duck under their 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 desks in school, right? Um, right. You know, I'm not that old. You're not that old, but uh, the um, even if that were to ever got, thank God that never happened. But if that were to have, God forbid, happened, I mean, there were that would take a long time for a missile from Russia from the Soviet Union to fly all the way to the United States, right? We don't have that here. So altogether, when what Menachem Begin I think decided back in 1981 when making the decision to send Israeli Air Force pilots F-16s to Iraq in a really amazing operation. Uh, they didn't know if they would all make it. They didn't know if they would all make it back. Um, but they flew there and they bombed the Osirak reactor. It was basically the decision that Israel can't afford this. Can't can't allow for nuclear weapons to be in the hands of a country. Of, or of a leader that openly calls for the destruction of the state of Israel. That was Saddam Hussein. That has been Iran for the last uh, 15, 20 years as it pursues nuclear capability. And in March of 2007, Israel basically fell into its lap to an extent. There were some signs and some suspicion that Syria was doing something in the nuclear realm, but no one knew what exactly or where. And then in a, in, a, in a real amazing Mossad operation in Vienna, where Israel got its hands on the computer of, a, of Syria's top nuclear scientist, right? Syria had a nuclear program. It had a nu nuclear research reactor that was under the supervision of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the UN's nuclear watchdog, the IAEA. Uh, but it had a staff of maybe 12 people, 13 people, nothing, nothing of a military nature, um, but Israel got its hands on this guy's computer, downloaded its contents, and discovered photos of a nuclear reactor being built somewhere in the desert in, in northeastern Syria. Israel discovered the location of it then. The, the photo cache was, was incredible. Uh, it, it had uh, photos of the nuclear fuel rods, of the inside of the reactor. Uh, this was going to be a plutonium reactor, so a heavy water facility. It was near the Euphrates River because it would need a steady supply of water that would need to go into the reactor to cool right. it and then water that leaves the reactor. Um, but it was being built as under disguise in a, in a structure that, that looked very much like some of these Ottoman period buildings huh. that you would see in, throughout the, the Syrian desert. 
there was no military presence nearby because they wanted to really hide what it was. And, it, and as you mentioned, it was being built by North Korea. So the the another rogue nuclear state, which still is a great grave threat, I would say, to the Western world, was building a nuclear reactor for another rogue state, which is right. a great supporter of terrorism. Uh, back in 2007, let's also remember America's in Iraq at the time. Syria is allowing um, uh, anti-American militias to move through its territory, to move weapons through its territory to Iraq that is then used to attack American soldiers. Uh, Syria is a bad, bad place. And, and Bashar al-Assad, the leader of Syria, who this happens after 2007, but let's just give it for the context, right? The, the so-called Arab Spring erupts in 2011. And in the civil war that then breaks out in Syria, Bashar al-Assad goes ahead and kills over half a million of his own people, sometimes with, with mustard gas, with V-axis. I mean, this guy uses chemical weapons against his own people, so he wouldn't use a nuclear weapon against Israel. Right. right? And, 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 and I think that what Ehud Olmert, who was the prime minister back in 2007, he didn't know what was going to happen come the civil war in Syria years later. But he knew something very basic, which is Israel doesn't have strategic depth. Israel cannot allow an enemy to get its hands on nuclear weapon that would pose a direct existential threat to the state of Israel. And he decided to take action. Got it. Uh, so uh, let me ask you a question going back to Iraq. As I recall, I didn't Google it because I figured, you know, the attack in Ara uh, on the Iraqi facility in 1981 was secret and Israel received tremendous backlash internationally as a result, specifically from the Reagan administration. Um, how did Prime Minister Olmert manage in the international diplomacy element of the attack on the Syrian uh, facility any differently and specifically vis-a-vis -vis the U.S.? And was there any kind of different global response? Well, the, the, you're right that the, the decision in 81 to bomb the Osirak reactor was a secret, and it was made by Menachem Begin and by the Israeli cabinet. Uh, the Reagan administration was very upset, delayed the supply and delivery of fighter jets to Israel, allowed for, for a very critical condemnation of Israel to pass at the UN Security Council. Uh, the world was upset. That would change a couple, you know, shortly later, definitely among uh, within the Reagan administration. In this case, but Israel did not share the did not share its, its concerns. It shared its concerns, but it didn't share its military plans with the Americans. In 2007, one of the things that Ehud Olmert decided on very early on was that he was going to take this intelligence that Israel had had, had got it in its hands on, not the Americans, and bring it to the United States. He, he, was th he had two real motivations. The first was he wanted uh, America to attack, right? That, that was what he, that was his first uh, objective. It was Primarily for two reasons. One was, uh, let's remember where Israel is in, in March, April of 2007. We're just half a year after the Second Lebanon War of 2000, the summer of 2006. Um, that's 16 years ago. Th this was a war that uh, saw 4,300 rockets rain down on Israel, Israel fighting against Hezbollah, the Iranian-supported terrorist organization that's today in complete control of Lebanon. Uh IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, came out of that war. Now, with the perspective, the historical perspective that we have, we can say they, they emerged and they beat them badly. And uh, Hezbollah is still deterred all these years later. But uh, but then there was a real feeling that Israel lost that war. 
or if it didn't lose the war, that it did not succeed and win the war. Correct. And uh, there were commissions of inquiry and, and, and there was a deep probe that was going on within the IDF itself. But there was a feeling that the Israeli military did not um, perform the way people thought it would. So to go to, to now attack Syria so shortly after a bad war, when the military is still rehabilitating itself, still rebuilding its capabilities, going through these structural and internal reforms to attack Syria, a bigger army, a conventional army, an army with more tanks and more soldiers and chemical weapons and yeah. biological weapons and right. long range ballistic missiles. Wow. You got to be you got to be really careful. Right. Because that, that's a bad, bad, bad war that might be coming. Uh, so if America attacks, the possibility that Syria would retaliate against Israel dramatically drops. Yes. That was number one. Number two was Iran. What Olmert was also thinking was that if uh, Israel attacks, so, you know, that's expected, right? Israel attacked in 81. Israel now heard that Syria got nuclear weapons. Israel attacked Syria. For years, we've been hearing about how Israel might one day attack Iran because of their nuclear facilities. But the Iranians would be as deterred as they are today, right? They know that Israel's done this. They know that Israel can do this. And they always think about the possibility that it might happen to them. America doesn't scare them necessarily, at least from a military perspective. They're scared of American diplomacy and sanctions, maybe. But I don't think they were ever really concerned of a U.S. military option. But if America suddenly attacks Syria... The Iranians would have to say to themselves, hold on a second. These Americans might actually come after us one day. Well let, said. Let, let's rethink what we're doing. And, and, and that's kind of where Omer was. So he, his head, his head, I, I think from my understanding was in two spaces. One was in, okay, how do I deal with this reactor now? And, and having America do it would minimize the chance of a war that I would have to be engaged in. And two is let's use this to leverage some deterrence against the Iranians. That didn't work out because America went through its own deliberative process, um, which took a period of months. And that's one of the things that I tell in great detail in the book, which is the story that never really was told, was kind of everyone looked at this story of, hey, everyone knew the basic details. Israel discovers a reactor. Omer tells Bush, asks Bush to attack. Bush says no. Israel attacks. Shalom al-Yisrael, right? as we say. Peace to Israel. Peace to Israel, yes. Um it was much more complicated. Bush really gave it a lot of thought. He set up different teams, teams of his principal uh, members of his administration. So that would be the Secretary of Defense, State, the, 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 the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the head of the CIA, the Director of National Intelligence, the Vice President. And then there was a team called the Drafting Group, which was made up of all the deputies of those other people who really sat around, did the heavy work, lifting, came up with real options right in in you know what's a, what would a military option look like what are the different options of a military wow. option? what would a diplomatic option look like and what would are the different options of a military of a diplomatic option and then presented all of these in due time to the president and to the other players it took a period of months so bush set these teams up in april the final answer given to Bush to to Olmert was in july right so for three months the americans really deliberated what to do uh, and, and I go into a lot of that, well, a lot of those debates inside the Oval Office, inside the, the situation room inside the book. I'm looking forward to reading that because obviously now we're, we're at best doing the cliff notes of your book, but it's, but it's fascinating. Um, also fascinating on that note that if, if not just the three months of deliberation, but the communication with 
the Bush administration beforehand and then afterward, and then Israel intelligence. We're talking about a, an operation that was um, creeping along in six over a period of six or, or, or more months. And the fact that it wasn't let out secret, no, that, that there was no, that it was a surprise. I think somewhere I read that you wrote the, the fact that it really was a total surprise attack is, is quite impressive. Um, I'm always overwhelmed by our air power, but one of the things that kind of blows me away and specifically as far away as eastern, northeastern Syria is that we had commandos on the ground in Syria confirming and, and, and highlighting the target. Um, other than that, or, or, or maybe that's it, I don't know. What's really unique about the operation from a military perspective? Well, it, it's a good question. I, I don't, you know, flying to Syria is always complicated. We see that Israel does that quite often lately, right? Uh, flying into Syria, bombing some Iranian... Uh, yeah, nowadays they're direct flights. Right. <laughs> <laughs> nowadays Israel does it quite often to deny or try to prevent what's no, called Iranian entrenchment inside Syria. Iran, Iran trying to set up a forward base inside Syria. Um, so this was not overly complicated. This was nothing the scale of Osirak, right? What, what made this one complicated was the following. What Israel tried to do was once the Americans said they're not going to attack, Israel said, okay, we have to do this. We have to remove this reactor. But is it possible to do it in a way that would be below the threshold of a war? So this is Assad's prize asset, right? He's building this facility. One of the things that they discovered was that Assad was keeping this a secret from members of his government, from his own defense minister. Wow. It was a select few of people who knew about it, his closest, closest advisors and a few others, and the North Koreans, of course. Uh, what Israel then gambled was that if it carries out a very small airstrike, small but big enough to destroy it, not a massive bombing, but a smaller one, and doesn't say anything, never speaks about it, never confirms, never denies, but never says a word about what it had done, that maybe this can give Assad what it called the uh, deniability, basically, and the, and the ability to then also pretend that nothing happened. Nothing happened because nothing existed because Correct. nobody in Syria knew about it to begin Correct. with. Correct. And, and, and had someone said that there was a nuclear facility that would have embarrassed Assad. So it actually uh, played to everyone's advantage to an extent that Israel gambled correctly. Assad also had an interest in kind of sweeping this all under the desert. And uh, and, and that's how it played out. And that, that whole strategy was all about trying to prevent this war that Israel feared would come after the bombing. Is that the psychological warfare component that you write about? So, no, the psychological warfare component is different, right? It, Assad, what Israel was also very careful about was not letting Assad know that it knew. Because if Assad were to find out that Israel had discovered this reactor, he could very easily prevent a bombing, right? One way of just doing that is move a kindergarten to, to the nuclear reactor, right? And then, as you and I know, Jonathan, um, I know lots of people in the world tend to, for some reason deny facts and reality and think that Israel just indiscriminately bombs places. Um, but Israel does exactly the opposite. It does everything possible not to sure. kill people. Um, 
but the, you know, I, I say that it's metaphorical kindergarten. But he, he he would be able to take steps that would prevent Israel from uh, from being able to bomb the facility. So Israel is very careful to keep a cl- tight lid on its own kind of uh, debates. And also the number of people who knew about this here in Israel was extremely limited. Uh, I, I can till today, 15 years later, talking to people who were privy to this and who played a role. Um, and and I, maybe I'll just use this opportunity to plug uh, a documentary that's being made uh, oh. based on my book um, by an Israeli uh, production company for an Israeli uh, television station. Very cool. Uh, so it's currently in production. But so I've actually recently met again with some of the key players and they still today look back at this at this uh, chain of events as something that was remarkable in the sense that everybody understood what they needed to do and everyone kept quiet. And as you know, Jonathan, in this country, that's not something that's that uh, that we could take for granted. So but the psychological warfare was 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 actually internal because, again, we're we're after the second Lebanon war. Right. So the army is going through all these reforms, is rebuilding its capabilities. Now, Israel's about to know some people, the government, right, the cabinet knows that they're about to bomb in Syria. Okay. How do you get the army, though, ready for war with Syria? That's different than war with Hezbollah. That's different than war with Hamas and Gaza. How do you prepare for war with Syria? This is this is a big enemy. Uh, they got tanks. This isn't counter-terror operations. This right. is be tanks against tanks, artillery against artillery. So... They had to come up with different excuses and, 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 and ideas and stories that they had to tell the internally in the military and the Israeli public. Why are they suddenly training for war with Syria? That was more of what I, I called that chapter in the book, Wag the Dog. You might remember. Yeah, yeah. The movie. 1994, 95. Great a movie. movie with D- Dustin Hoffman. Yep. Uh, and Robert De Niro about a, uh, about a, a president and his spin doctor who make up a fake war, I think in Albania to, so, yeah, uh, yes, something like to, that, right? co- to try to help the president. I think there was a sex scandal or something. I don't remember, but, but, but again, making up a fake. So this was similar in, in that sense to, but it was an internal psychological warfare. Interesting because there are enough journalists like you here in Israel who will be looking for things like that to say, ah, something's uh, something's not normal with the with the training, with the preparations, with the uh, overflight. Which, by the way, which we did, and we were asking, why are we now training for war in the Golan? And they told the stories. You know, I I remember specifically being told a story by an officer at the time about how Syria has adopted Hezbollah tactics, and now Syrian commandos are driving on motorcycles with anti-tank missiles, and we have to prepare for that. And it was like, it's not, it was a great story, and I wrote it for the Jerusalem Post. <laughs> it, was a, it sounded, I don't know if it was real, right? I, I now know that, that a lot of this was made up, um, and it was done so the Israeli public would would internalize there's a possibility for war with Syria and and therefore Israeli soldiers would begin to be able to understand why they're training for war with Syria. That's fascinating. Didn't know that. That's awesome. Um, let, let me take another quick break and then I want to come back and and now uh, focus our attention on the um, other the the imminent threat 15 years later. I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out 
all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill, they are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. That's genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. Okay, so Yaakov, this is amazing. Much of the time when Israel's carrying out operations, um, including the bombing of uh, Iranian sites in Syria and Lebanon now, or even further away, as you noted in the case with Syria uh, 15 years ago, Israel doesn't claim responsibility for all of the reasons um, that you that that you noted. What did what, you you mentioned that part of the calculation that Olmert was considering was how would the Iranians look at it, and therefore wanting the Americans to uh, to to to, ta- to 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 do to do the damage so that it would it would look more significant threat that the Americans might operate. Uh, do something with Iran. And that's great. It makes sense. But how in view, how, how in view of what happened in Syria 15 years ago, and the fact that today, I mean, yes, we do have individual voices that, that, that are calling for diplomacy, even among uh, senior uh, military and, and intelligence people, and certainly in politics. But today, everyone's Everyone's uh, what's I, I'm, I'm losing my English. What's the phrase? Um, ra- rattling their guns. That, that's that's not the right word. But um, beating the war drums, sir. Beating war drums. There we go. I'll take that one. Uh, beating war drums here that we're preparing for that imminent, yeah. imminent maybe attack. How is how how, how is that related? Uh, but albeit that it's very different to what the threat is with Iran today. Well. <sighs> Iran today is is a grave threat to Israel, right? Uh, you don't need me to tell you that. I think everyone knows that. Uh, you have the combination of a radical regime that calls for Israel's destruction, that is pursuing a capability that would allow it to try to make that happen, right? That, those are two ingredients that Israel cannot allow to happen. By the way, I mean, just let me just open parentheses for a second. One question that, I've, that I ask myself a lot writing this book and thinking about Iran also, because I wrote, wrote also a book once in the past about Iran, is that, you know, in Hebrew, I would say, Admatai, until when, right? Until what point does Israel say, I can't do this anymore? But we're going to go around like a game of whack-a-mole and just knock out nuclear reactors all the time whenever they come up and we don't like them? I mean, it, you know, so we did in Iraq, we did in Syria, we might do it in Iran. I mean, at what point do you say, I can't do it anymore? So one of Israel's real, I would say, prominent and and serious and a person who I respect as a a, uh, strategic thinker, Dan Meridor, member of uh, consecutive Israeli cabinets, real smart man, it it gave me the ingredients, right? Uh, 
We spoke about Pakistan, an Islamic country, has nuclear weapons. How come that's not a threat to Israel? Because they don't threaten Israel, right? But the moment you have a country that openly threatens us, says we want you gone, and pursues the capability, those are the ingredients. So Iran is up there. It's no different than Iraq. It's no different than Syria. The problem is that the Iranians have learned the lessons of Iraq and Syria. Right. And we, both of those countries had one single facility above ground. Once destroyed, that was pretty much it. Iran has scattered nuclear facilities across the country, has created multiple tracks to obtain what's known as fissionable material. Whether it's uranium or plutonium, they have both opportunities or both options. The plutonium option set back a little because of the JCPOA, the 2015 deal, but they've re-upped that again. Uh, at what point, at how many of these facilities can you really destroy? Can you really destroy their nuclear program? Or maybe you can only set them back. And if we're only talking about setting them back and only delaying them, is it even worth doing? And I'll add another question to this equation. And that is the fact that if you look at 81 and you look at 2007, in 81, the French were building this reactor for the Iraqis. In 2007, North Korea was building the reactor for the Syrians. So what that meant was that the moment you destroyed the facility, the, 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 the country, Iraq, Syria, would not be able to rebuild it on its own. They didn't have an indigenous ah. nuclear program or nuclear technological infrastructure. They didn't Good have point. the scientists of their own. They Good would point. still need to rely on a foreign expertise. Iran, they have it all. It's, yeah. it's Iranian. They're not relying on some third party. They're relying only on themselves. So that, that's why, you know, you take out a scientist here, you blow up a facility there. You, these are all delay tactics. This is not what's going to stop them. And, and I'm, I'm personally, I don't want to be the, the doomsday prophet here, <laughs> but, uh, but personally, I, I fear that I have no doubt. Let me say this. I have no doubt that Israel can do something, right? I have no doubt that Israel can fly there can bomb some some things, can can create enough damage that would, again, delay them maybe a year or two, maybe more. But that won't be the end of their nuclear program, right? That, that, that's not going to be the end of it. And, and therefore, we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it, right? And, and, and if it's not, so where are we then? And, and that's a discussion I don't necessarily feel like I hear and I see in Israel today. Um, and I think we need to have that discussion more. Sure. But on the other hand, is it worth it if you know that they're pursuing this? However, you come to a point where we, we didn't want it to happen with, Iran, with Iraq. We didn't want it to happen with Syria. And the Iranians suddenly now have both the, uh, the, the, the nuclear material and a way to deliver it. We can't let that happen. So even, even if it's, you're right, there should be a conversation. I don't recall you writing about that recently. But, uh, but I mean, doesn't it seem pretty obvious that we can't let them get to that point? Yeah, but 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 maybe I mean, there's so there's a couple of answers that Jonathan potentially we missed the window, right? That's that's possibility one, is that there was an opportunity. Uh, remind you, in 2010 and 2012, Netanyahu was then prime minister, held security cabinet meetings about potentially attacking, and in the end, it, the the approval was never was never given. But but I think that maybe it's possible that we've missed the we've we've missed the genuine window that once existed. The second possibility is that 
you're right. No matter what, what, at the end of the day, we might have to do it. And and with whatever price it comes with, we'll we'll have to do something at least to set them back, even knowing that they're just going to rebuild it and then they're going to have complete support of the world to rebuild it and then to get nuclear weapons. And they'll be able to say, by the way, we had a civilian nuclear program. You attacked us. Now, of course, we're going to create a military nuclear <laughs> program because you just gave us the excuse why you guys go around the world and blow stuff up. Right. And then there's there's the third option, which I think is the preferred option. Yeah. Even though if you talk to Israeli officials, they will say that it's a bad deal and the deal is no good and we're against the deal. But Israel wants a deal. Right. Israel prefers a deal because what a deal does, it's similar to a nuke to to a bombing. Right. A deal is a delay. Right. What was the big flaw with the JCPOA with the 2015 nuclear deal? There were a lot of problems, but the big flaw was that it had what was called the sunset clause, right? That yes. In 2025, parts of the deal start to expire. It, it doesn't all take place at once. It's a process, but eventually the, it all phases out. And and Israel said this is a problem, 100%. <laughs> yes, big problem. But it buys you 10 years of quiet. And 10 years of quiet in the Middle East is not a small thing, Right. A bombing of Iran in its nuclear facilities would buy you two years of quiet, three well, years. Well, two of years quiet. of quiet and a punishing blow from right. our northern neighbors. And, and a, a, huge, a huge war that would yeah. come after. Yeah, a huge yeah, war. Of course, that would see significant devastation and throughout Israel because Hezbollah firing uh, thousands of rockets a day. A day, right? To be able to fire over up to five thousand a day all across the country. Not a thousand over three days like Islamic Jihad, right. five thousand a day. Um, that that that's something that is of a different scale. So again, I I don't want to come to terms with an Iranian nuclear weapon. God forbid, Israel has to do everything possible to stop it. And if if for example tomorrow, Jonathan, we were to find out that the Iranians are enriching uranium now to ninety percent levels, which is a military grade level, right? I would think that the the countdown is close. It's 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 tick it's ticking. Right. They're not yet there. We're not yet at that place. And uh, as we talk, there's a lot of talk of a possible deal, too. And, you know, there's all these negotiations that are going on and who knows where we'll be. But um, but I, I think that Israelis today understand that it's all about buying time until the big the big solution comes. You know what the big solution is? <laughs> you're, big you're, you're, well, go ahead. The big solution is uh, a change in the regime in Iraq. Correct. Yeah. That 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 is that is I think what everyone really yearns for, and uh, unfortunately, that's not something we can engineer. That's well, we can't engineer, but it could be precipitated by a uh, by a military strike. I think the the opposite would, would the opposite. Yeah, is that a military strike by Israel in Iran? would uh galvanize the people behind the regime and uh and and i think that that would actually ha might have the opposite effect but uh but but i think that sanctions are actually a great tool because what if we've looked over the last 10 years or now it's even 11 12 years um there was there were the riots of 09 there were recently yes. in the last couple of years there were uh um, marches and protests, and and you see that the people they're suffering. They they, they have no economic 
future. They, 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 they're, they're the mo there's a movement of young people who want to be free, who don't want to live under religious uh, sure. tyrants, basically. Um, and 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 we we can hope that 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 those people can actually bring about change themselves. Right. So that that would be the the, the real ultimate uh, resolution to this problem. Well, I, I appreciate that. Yours is certainly a much more informed perspective than mine. Uh, and, and I'm guessing everyone listening. So thanks for that. Um, one, one of the differences that I thought about, go, going back to the potential for a military strike, is that one of the big differences today versus 2007 is that unlike in Syria, which of course was secret, um, we now have overt peaceful relations with the UAE and Bahrain, which are their neighbors and, and, and less overt, but, and, and albeit not peaceful, but really strong, it seems collaborative arrangements with the Saudis, all of whom are, are, are probably threatened or, and, and intimidated and concerned by a nuclear weapon in Iran as well. Um, do you see that playing any role in a potential military strike? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you know, first of all, like you said, the the Abraham Accords and these relationships and this alliance that Israel has with some of these Gulf states, they, they are just as concerned, if not more, as Sunni states of, of what would happen if the Iranians would get their hands on nuclear weapons. Iran is actively in some of these countries working to undermine them, is attacking them. Right? We know that the Iranian-supported Houthis in Yemen have fired drones and, and ballistic missiles at the UAE, into Abu Dhabi. Um, they, they've attacked Saudi uh, gas fields, right? Uh, oil fields. Um, Bahrain, they've tried to undermine the regime. So th they would be supportive, definitely uh, from a diplomatic perspective, but even possibly giving Israel access to airspace, uh, potentially. I don't know that that would happen, but that's something that's been on the table. Uh, we, we've seen joint uh, exercises. We saw, for example, something that I don't know that I ever would have thought I would see, the UAE Air Force chief coming to Israel and meeting with his Israeli counterparts and and watching Israeli drills. So there, there is that we saw the Israeli defense minister in Bahrain uh, signing defense pacts. Right. Um, this is a new region, and and no doubt that this will impact how Israel views regional security. Do you? So actually, the last question I wanted to talk about, and you just sort of helped expand it for me goes back to what you were saying earlier about Prime Minister Olmert's real desire to have the U.S. carry out the attack on, on the Syrian uh, nuclear site. President Biden was just here, what, two, two months ago-ish. Um, and, and I know that, and from here, he went to the Saudi, Saudi Arabia. And of course, the, the, the Sunni Arab states are looking at how the U.S. will, will be supportive or not vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Do you think anything concrete came out of the Biden visit that led Israel or the Arab world to have any greater confidence that the U.S. might be on board to prevent prevent this? I mean, there was a lot of nice talk. There was a lot of nice talk. I think that um, no one here has illusions that America is going to do the job for Israel or for anyone else. Um, America is preoccupied with major global problems, whether it's the Russia-Ukraine war, Taiwan-China tension, it, the economy and the inflation that's out of control in the United States, 
the midterm elections that are coming up and then the presidential elections that are going to be in just a few uh, in, in, in just a couple of years after all of this together uh, leads to the fact that this is something that we're going to have to deal with. This is an Israeli problem. I think, you know, people were happy to hear and to see a president in the region talking about being engaged. But I don't think there are any illusions here. This is, at the end of the day, it's going to be up to us to take care of ourselves. You know how I ended the book, Jonathan? With no. a famous saying from Hillel Hazakein, Hillel the Elder. Ah. The, uh, 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 great sages the, 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 who uh, appeared in the Mishnah um, de- during the, but this is what, the second temple period. And um, he says in, in the ethics of our fathers, in Perkei Avot, Im mili, right? If I am not for myself, who will be for me, right? right. And and I, and I think that 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 is at the base of 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 Jewish Israeli doctrine and existence in this country is that at the end of the day, we we established an independent state in Zion, uh, not to have to rely on someone else, because we can, thank God, rely on ourselves. And if I look at this, this, this historical trajectory of our country, which is soon going to mark 75 years of statehood and independence, that is the story of Israel, right? You know, we, 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 the, the country was established in the aftermath of what is probably the darkest period in modern history, definitely, but maybe in the world of the Correct. genocide of six million Jews. Uh, had there been a state of Israel, then that would not have happened, right? But not because Israel could have then taken on Nazi Germany or whatever it would be, but because Israel wouldn't, wouldn't have let this happen. Israel would have gone in. Israel would have done things that would have gotten the world together, whatever it was. Israel would – that's why something like that – and that's why Israel exists, right? Uh, we exist as a country so we don't have to think about depositing our security and our fate in the hands of someone else, right? Um and and that is the, that is what I learned from working on this story of the Syrian reactor. Yes, Omer went to Bush. He wanted Bush to do it. He had his reasons. But the moment Bush said no, on the phone call with Bush, Omer said to Mr. President, you're making a mistake. But if you won't do it, I will do it because I carry the burden of the fate of the Jewish people. And 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 Ehud Olmert is a controversial character in Israeli politics, I know. Went to jail, corruption. But in this story, in this moment, yes. you ask me, he bought his peace in heaven because, ah, I like it. because he he understood his his moment in history, like Menachem Begin understood his moment in history in 1981. Uh, we cannot allow these things to happen. We have to rely only on ourselves. And, and, and that is the lesson that I think you look throughout this history, you look throughout our country, you look at these different stories. That that is If I am not for myself, who will be for me? Wow, Yaakov Katz, what an incredible conversation! You leave us on a, I think, uh, albeit albeit with um, some some clouds over, but uh, an optimistic look, and, and and I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful for your time today, your insight, and of course, I mean, I'm looking forward to now, now that I've ordered. I'm looking forward to finally reading it, uh, your book Shadow Strike, and I hope others will take advantage of the t- availability to go and get their own copy. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Jonathan. If you've stayed with us, I always end, end the conversations with a little bit of uh, 
tongue in cheek, but if you've stayed with us this long and r- related to this conversation, you deserve and actually going to get a really lovely reward. Beginning this year, the Genesis 123 Foundation began offering a special gift. Each month, we select a special volume from what we call Jonathan's Bookshelf. So what we ask is that you go to the Inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. And when you comment and share the link to this program, we will select one person at random to win a special volume. And I'm excited to announce that this month we are offering a copy. Maybe we can get an autographed copy of Shadow Strike by our guest, Yaakov Katz, editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. We're also grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're ever in the area, please pop in and say hi and thank them for helping make programs like this possible. And special thanks also to our friends, the Coyne family, for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. And I mentioned that I was going to be having this conversation today with a friend who's a real military buff, and he he elected anonymously, but to sponsor this episode and is eager to hear it. So I'm grateful for that sponsorship. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion or an historic event, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd always love to hear your comments as part of an ongoing dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, specifically for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this with others who you know who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you. Yeah.